Hey there, everybody. I'm David Bruner, Director of Discipleship at Paley Presbyterian Church. Hey, friends. This is the sixth and final episode of our series. I can't believe it's already done. Um, it went so fast because the subject matter was so fascinating. Uh, in this last episode, we do something a little different. We just spend some time trying to put the pieces together and sum up where we've been and what we've learned. So we take some questions from the class, and then we wrap up with some um, points of my own that are intended to bring some things together and sum up our journey. Um, we talk a lot about biblical interpretation, about the different figures we've looked at, and the hope we can have in Jesus Christ that God's mercy will never fail. Um, I hope you've enjoyed this class. As always, there's study materials on paoliprez.org adults, and if you've got questions or thoughts, drop me a line. David.Bruner at paleyprez.org. Blessings. Hi, everybody. Let me begin by recapping where we've been. Um, we've had people in and out. So we're in the last week of this class. We're wrapping up tonight. Um, doesn't mean you can't keep thinking about these issues or keep emailing me with your questions, but this class is going to stop tonight. So the last four weeks, we spent time looking at different um thinkers within the Christian tradition. And part of the point of that was to introduce you to different um, points of view, different perspectives within the Christian tradition, and to help you begin to see the diversity within the Christian tradition. What we're doing this week is trying to do a little review and wrap up. So this is to give us some space to process together, to ask questions, to um, yeah, just to reflect together a little bit. The last four weeks have been really fast. It, we, we've sort of been driving through the history of Christian thought with our foot on the gas as far down as it could go. Um, so I, I'm guessing that some of you are a little bit um, amazed and or baffled, um, which is fine. Or maybe you're right up to date with everything. And that's, that's also wonderful. I want to start just by asking for your feedback. Um, I'd love to hear the questions you have, what you're still wondering about, what you don't understand, where you're at now, if your perspective has changed, if you've shifted on any of this um, after what we've talked about and learned, um, what we've studied that's been most exciting or encouraging to you. I'd love to hear those three things. So questions you have, things that you're excited and encouraged about, and where you're at at this point in the course. Well, can I, I was doing a little BART kind of like resume. Sure. And can I pass some things through off to you? Yeah. Uh, this is a commentary. So first BART, it says uh, BART's theology has no place for a sinless creation that became uh, defiled by sin in history. In other words, there's no no space for Adam. Huh? According to Barth, Adam doesn't exist. There, there's no need for an Adam. Sure. Now his idea is that man was immediately the first sinner. So no, so there's no need for a sinner to transition from being under God's judgment to being under God's grace through faith in Jesus. Now, here's the point. In, in believing, they are only conforming 
to the decision about them that has already been made in God and the God event of Jesus Christ. Yeah. So that sounds like uh, predestination. So uh, let me continue then to intersect there. Jesus is both God's act of God's self-revelation to man and reconciliation between God and humanity. So, and then the, the theological consequ consequence to, to this position is the objective reconciliation of all people to God, the doctrine of universal salvation. So what this made, what this was good for me to see how Bart actually, you know, through his thinking comes up with, uh, you know, universal salvation. Sure. So, um, Lou, I think you win the prize for having done the most extensive research on Carl Bart. Absolutely. Bart's I know it. He has. Um, so what I would say is I, I would take that. I'm not sure where that, um, uh, source you quoted came from, mm -hmm. I would take it with a little bit of a grain of salt. Um, so for instance, um, so that in this course, at least, you know, we've made the decision to place Karl Barth in the sort of um, agnostic camp rather than the universalist camp. Mm -hmm. And it sounds like the person you just read is um, convinced that Bart actually winds up in the universalist camp. Yeah. Which, depending on your point of view, you know, <laughs> some yeah. people think he's a universe universalist. Yes, this is correct. This is the right answer. Yeah. And other people think he's a universalist. Never yeah. read him again. He's terrible, right? So part of the discussion we were having last week was trying to say, let's let's start by taking Karl Barth at his own word when he says, I'm not a universalist, right? And I, I reject the idea of what we find in origin and others of apocatastasis pantom, right? Mm -hmm. The restoration of all things. Bart instead wants to leave the door open for the possibility right. of universal restoration. Right. So it's the same idea, but it's more tentative yeah. and less confident. Yeah, I think this person was quoting Bart when he says, uh, I do not teach universalism, but I do not not teach universalism. Yes. <laughs> right. So remember, Hunsinger says, in effect, if you, you know, if you put Karl Bart up against a wall and said, OK, is it is it true? If you have to choose, you know, you choose between the statement, everyone will be saved or the statement, not everyone will be saved. His answer is none of the above. Mm -hmm. So um, this is, this tends to create frustration for people who want to try and pin him down a little bit more. In my mind, this ambiguity is virtuous rather than wimpy. <laughs> mm -hmm. Not everyone agrees with um, yeah, but that's, that's a great, that's a great question. So you're tracking right with the discussion that we saw last week. And what you found was a critic of Bart saying this leads naturally to universalism. Mm -hmm. Um, 
what else? So what questions do you have? What has excited or encouraged you? Where are you at personally at this point in our course? There we go. Can you please um, give a simple explanation of annihilism? That's the only one I don't feel like I understand very well. Yeah, sure. So uh, thanks. Uh, that's the point of view that's associated with John Stott, who's a British evangelical thinker who, who lived in the 20th century and along with C.S. Lewis is you know, one of the, the great 20th century British Christians. And his theory is, is basically very similar to a traditional view of hell, except for one thing, which is that hell doesn't last forever. So in, that's why it's called annihilationism, right? So you go to hell and then what happens? Psst, die and that's it. Um, so unlike Augustine, your suffering is not eternal and prolonged forever. So it represents kind of a modification of Augustine's traditional view, a tempering of it, um, while still holding to the main lines of that point of view. So Lewis's concept of free will and freedom of choice that dies when you die, you don't get to choose anymore when you die. So Lewis is a little bit vague on this point. Okay. So, part of <laughs> so am I. <laughs> right. so, so you're probably not the only one. So <laughs> In the short excerpt, so um, the recommended reading was a short excerpt from his little book, The Problem of Pain, which is a really wonderful resource for getting a hold of him. And it's probably about 10, 15 pages. And in that book, he seems to say, people who wind up in hell are the sort of people that you could give them a thousand do-overs but no matter how many opportunities you give them, they will still never willingly and freely surrender to Jesus. So the, the whole point of Lewis's point of view is that God doesn't send anyone to hell. People send themselves to hell by virtue of their own choices and the, and the character they cultivate through their life. So if you look at the problem of pain, what he says is, you know, giving them another chance after they die is possible, but ultimately irrelevant. Now, if you look at his book, The Great Divorce. Right. With people mm -hmm. Right. So The Great Divorce is set in hell. And every day in hell, there's a bus that goes from hell to heaven. Right. And most people don't want to get on it. And most of the people that get on it immediately get don't on it. get off. I'm, I'm not going to stay on this bus because I can't stand being with him. And if he thinks I'm going to ride this bus, bus next right. to him, right? And by the time <laughs> you, get up, you actually get up to heaven, heaven is this painful place to be for the denizens of hell. So in the great divorce, there are maybe two or three people that make it to heaven from hell. So, you know, it's not a... It's a story and not a doctrinal treatise. So tell me what that means, right? 
he does seem to leave the door open for someone making it out of hell and into heaven after death in that way. Okay. So in, in that sense, um, right? Remember in the, the chart last week, the, the four-way XY chart, I put him right in the corner among the infernalists. And someone said, well, actually, he should be a little closer to the universalists. And I said, yeah, that's right. Um, he's, he's not a universalist by any stretch of the imagination, but he's also not as definite about it as Augustine is. Okay. Dave? Thank you. Yeah. Um, I, I'm not exactly sure how to frame my question, but which comes first, the chicken or the egg? Which comes first? The point, our understanding of the nature of God uh -huh. or our choice of one of the four points of view that you've outlined for us. Sure. So um, I would say the four points of view are all different understandings of the nature of God, right? Mm -hmm. So a conception, everything in theology is connected to everything else. Theology is like anatomy, where if you learn enough about the hand, right? You might think to yourself, okay, I'm taking hands 101 in medical school, right? And I'm going to learn all about the bones in the hand and the ligaments in the hand and the tendons in the hand and the nerves in the hand. They're connected. Eventually what's going to happen, right? It's all connected. It's all connected to every other part of your body. So it is with Christian theology. Um, so we can talk about heaven, hell, and salvation, which is what this course is about. What you'll find is that that issue of heaven, hell, and salvation is of a piece with our understanding of who God is, right? Of what God is like in God's self. Um, these are issues that theology typically refers to as the doctrine of the Trinity, the doctrine of God. So these are ways of exploring those issues. Last week, we talked about how you can't, you know, if you want to stake a claim about heaven, hell, and salvation, you have to also get a sense of issues in grace and free will. Mm-hmm. So uh, it's all related, but yes, if you're if you're adopting one of these four views, you have a perspective on on who God is. Um, this is something we'll talk about. It's a good question, uh, Dad, because one of the things we'll talk about in coming um, in coming minutes in this class is there's no such thing as a sincerely held theological belief that is totally irrelevant. Mm -hmm. All theology is practical in the sense of what we believe about God has a bearing on who we think God is and how we lead our lives. Mm -hmm. And so even though the discussions have gotten pretty sophisticated and you know we've been using technical terms and recondite language and all that stuff. I mean, a lot of it comes down to who do we really think God is? So, Nate, you've got your hand up. Um, I just had your uh, your questions of, uh, you know, uh, what questions you have, you know, and what, what's gotten you excited and where are you now? I had, I had just some things on that. Um, the first question is the question that I, I always come full circle on this. And it's like, does it really matter? Like after all of it's said, like if I have my kids in the back of the car, right. And they're like, 
dad, what are you thinking about? And I'm like, I can't tell them about the four different types of hell, right? Like <laughs> we have so many complex things that happen in life. And Only you if go, you're awesome, you know? <laughs> yeah, you kind of come back to like a child life, childlike yeah. thought process of like, for instance, you know, if I'm funneling my personal life into this, my cousin is getting baptized this weekend, oddly to us for the second time in her life. But when our kids ask us why, it's because she wants people to know she loves God. And we're good with saying that. Right. But in, then we have the adult conversation, right? right? So to me, this is like a secondary issue thing where I'm like, if I'm talking about hell and the different, how do I believe about it? Then the thing that gets me excited is I started to think through, and I wrote this down, how we believe about hell says what we hope will happen if we fail, right? <laughs> it's like, it's sure. like, okay, well, I, I hope it's just like annihilation because I don't want to experience the, yeah. Or it's like, I really hope there's like more chances to get out of this thing or it's like, you know, whatever. But that kind of like is kind of what started to get me excited as I listened to this class is what I started to realize about myself and maybe what those weaknesses are. And like, if you got to think that way, then maybe you need to work a little bit more on your own, you know, prayer time with God and, and the way that you're handling your life and the way you're thinking through, um, you know, how that you want to be a witness to others or to share with your own family. Right. But right. then the last thing I got um, for you here was like, now, where are you? I started to try to think about those four stages of hell through a different lens, right? Like, um, instead of just like, this is what this type of hell is, and this, this hell, and I started thinking through like, what does that mean to God, right? And yeah. so I thought like, there's God will punish me or God will reward me. There's God can give me eternity or finality. Then in my mind, there was God can allow second chances beyond this life to receive salvation. Like, like you can get, you can pray out of purgatory. And then there was, God can redeem us all just because he can will it. Mm -hmm. And I just, I started thinking through those and I'm like, then it became, which God is it? And maybe it's all because he's, you know, omniscient, but I started thinking yeah. through people um, like Brennan Manning and, and sure. ragamuffin gospel kind of stuff. Right. Where there's like this real redemptive quality is who we want to see God be. And God is love. And so for me, where am I now? It, it seems to fall more on the spectrum that, God can love me just because he does. Um, and I really like that, that piece. Yeah. Nate, that's wonderful. Thank you so much for sharing all that. I mean, um, I think uh, many of us will resonate with many of the remarks that you shared, right? So, so one thing that's both exciting and challenging about a course like this is you really realize you have a chance to experience a little bit of the intellectual depth of the Christian tradition, right? So, yeah. We all, you know, we all grow up singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And we internalize that version of our faith. And then at some point, it, when you grow up and become an adult, you start asking adult-sized questions. And then you realize that there are really, really smart adults who have been kicking around these issues for centuries, right? And right. You, can, you can, like me, spend all of your free time <laughs> investigating that stuff. And I think there's something beautiful about that. Right. There's this wonderful statement. I think it's by Augustine, actually, where he says the Bible is shallow enough that a child can play in its water and deep enough, deep enough that an elephant can go swimming in it. Yeah. Where like the 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 depth of Holy Scripture and the depth of Jesus Christ's love for us grows as we grow. 
And there is enough substance there to keep up with us if we decide we want to go deep. Now, I have the same problem you have, right? Where I'm trying to raise kids and not just raise questions. And so when they say, okay, Dave, what happens, you know, what happens to people when they die? I need to give them a short and succinct answer. And the best answer I can come up with is the one I think that, that Bart gives, right? Which is to say, we can trust that God is like Jesus. Right. And the, the perfect love and perfect mercy and justice that we see on the cross are really tell us what God is like. But one of the things that happens when you study theology is it, it can be, um, it can be confusing <laughs> and you look at so many different opinions and you begin to, you begin to think, well, do I just arbitrarily pick one of these? Right. Is it just right. opinions all the way down? You know, I, going back to the first week, one of the things I said was, you know, this isn't a cafeteria and I'm not the lunch lady. Right. And I was referring of course, to that idea of being a cafeteria Christian where you just, pick and choose the parts that you like as though you were picking up lunch at a lunch counter. Yeah. Yeah. And I don't want you to do that. We're going to talk about that a little bit more in, in the next section of this class as well. I hope, right. That Christianity isn't quite as simple as the, the Bible says X there. I do. Therefore I do X. The Bible says Y there. I do Y. There's this moment in between where we're reading the Bible and interpreting it and trying to figure out how to apply it to our lives and that takes some sophistication and it takes some reflection and some prayer. And it doesn't, yeah. doesn't mean we don't still stand under the authority of scripture, but we just need to be honest and forthright about how we do that. So um, I really, I resonate with all that stuff. You said, Nate. Thank you. Um, Wendy, were you going to jump in and say something? I only um, was, Nate had so much insight in what, I could have possibly started to say, but I, I felt excited. Um, well, I'm just was reminded of God's grace in, you know, in personal salvation, but in for others. Um, I have to say, I would like to um, lean toward the ones where people do have a second chance. Predestination or a rotten life does not mean there is no other opportunity. Yeah. So thank you. I, I, I find it exciting and I want to believe in a, a God that acts like Jesus. So. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm, I'm obviously very much of the same mind. Um, yeah. I mean, I think a lot of Christians, a lot of Christians sometimes have a bad conscience if they don't believe in something like the traditional view of hell. Right. Other they think, oh, I'm a bad Christian. If I were really a good Christian, I would believe that hell is so much worse. It's just as bad as that one person or that one book says or that one passage of scripture. And I think part of what this course is about is being able to say, OK, there are there are good grounds on Christian terms to hold out hope for those who haven't become Christian in this life, have rejected Jesus, die without knowing him. Um, and that we don't need to water down our Christian faith to have that sort of hope. In fact, quite the opposite. Um, so I, I, I certainly connect with that. Anyone else wanna weigh in on questions you have? Um, 
things that excited you or encouraged you or where you're at now? I just, I have a lot of questions <laughs> as I'm sure everybody does. Yeah. The more I have taken Bible studies, the more I see that um, the Bible has been translated in lots of languages from different cultures. And so some of the words in some of the other languages don't translate to English. There just are no words that translate. And so maybe we don't have the same meaning as some of the other people that are reading it other places. Uh, and words are different and, and it can make a huge difference in what that scripture means. And yeah. that has been eye-opening to me and a little discouraging in a way because I think sometimes <laughs> it's been manipulated to say what some people want it to. Sure. Um, and then of course, I, I sh not to upset people, but the sexism of it bothers me sometimes. And how some of that has been translated to make Jesus look different than he was or, or whatever. But um, so that's been something I've been kind of struggling with. And the fact that some people can take one verse and use it in a different way than someone else. And so it can get very confusing. What does the Bible really say? Yeah. Depending on who's translating it. Yeah. Um, and, and where they stand politically, where they stand emotionally, uh, culturally or whatever. So right. that, that has been something I, I become more aware of. And I, and so I, I just, I keep that in the back of my mind. Yeah. I was just talking today to someone who's been coming to this course regularly and he, bless his heart. He was saying, you know, I just keep coming to these Bible studies and all I get is different opinions and I just want to know what God says. Mm -hmm. Just tell me what God says. Don't give me opinions about what God says. And I had to laugh, right? Because so the way God's word comes to us is with human skin on, right? So it comes to us in this very human document that was written thousands of years ago in ancient Greek. And every time we read it in English, it's translated into our mother tongue. And Christian, Christians are unique because we think this is a good and acceptable process. So if you, if you talk to a committed Muslim, they'll tell you the Holy Quran can only be read in Arabic. So if you read the Quran in translation, you're technically not reading the Quran mm -hmm. because the real Quran is only available in Arabic. It cannot be translated. So Christians don't do that. So if someone's reading the Bible in Spanish or in Japanese or in English, they're reading Holy Scripture just as much as anyone else. But what this means is that there's no, you know, we can't get the, the version of Scripture that drops down out of heaven, right, um, straight from the sky that says, here it is, right? And of course, that's what Jesus was like. It, the word made flesh was subject to just as much confusion and misinterpretation as the word written, <laughs> right? Plenty of people looked at Jesus and said, nope, he's not the Messiah, right? Or who does this guy think he is? So what's happening, or they tried to enlist him for their own agenda, or they liked him a little bit. And then when he started saying things they didn't like, they turned their back on him, right? I mean, we're all acquainted with how Jesus is actually treated. And, and in a different key, the same sort of stuff plays itself out. I think what's, um, you know, and what's really important is for all of us, for all of you, not just me, the religious professional, but for all of you to be 
thoughtful, engaged readers of scripture, right? And to take time out of your busy lives to, to thoughtfully read God's word and think about what it means. Because what that's going to do is help you, you know, winnow out the good interpretations of the Bible from the bad ones and help you direct your fellow lay people towards good interpretations of scripture and away from bad ones. One one more thing is I think that humans in general like to label everything and Mm. put it in a box. And I think that they have tried to put God in a box and I think he's way bigger than any box could fit. And I think that, that we are all different and maybe this, it allows us all to be who God made us to be and be ourselves, you know, within reason, we're, st- we're still supposed to follow all the godly rules. But I think, I think that he is just bigger than any of us can anticipate. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think um, legalism is a besetting problem. <laughs> in Christianity and in a lot of different religions, right? And it is, this is a besetting sin of theologians where, you know, you have a mental picture of how God is supposed to be. And if the Lord himself showed up and said something different than what you thought in your theology, you would say politely, I'm sorry, Jesus, you can't say that. You have to go back to heaven. I'll take it from here. And uh, I, I knew a famous Christian theologian named Robert Jensen, who used to say the fact that Jesus is alive, that he rose from the tomb on Easter means that he is always capable of surprising us. Yeah. Um, and we cannot, cannot ever really box him in. Now, of course, God is faithful. God is reliable. God is consistent in upholding his promises to us. Um, But that's not the same as our pinning him down like a butterfly on a piece of cardboard so that we can be in charge. Mm -hmm. Um, And yeah, I mean, that's that's a very important point, bro. Thank you. Anyone else want to comment at this point? Well, God, God is transcendent. I mean, he's, we'll never totally understand. He transcends all our human intellect. So we can try, but, you know, Thoreau, I mean, we'll never totally understand God and God's creation. So. And, and thank God we won't, you know, cause there's right. always, there's always right. the fact that God is so much bigger than we are. Doesn't mm-hmm. mean we shouldn't try to understand mm-hmm. It doesn't mean we can't grow in understanding. Mm-hmm. It just means there's always going to be an, a difference yeah. between my thoughts about God and God. Mm-hmm. They're not the same thing. Right. Um, let me shift gears. Okay, so here's the discussion we just had. What I did is I came up with some theses um, just to try and summarize, wrap up, and provoke some discussion. This is an old academic habit, especially if you studied in Germany. It's long been a way of um, fostering a conversation. So Martin Luther famously posted 95 theses on the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany. This uh, was not well received and started something of a kerfuffle. I don't have 95 theses. 
<laughs> or do I have, uh, nor am I aiming to start a revolt or a worldwide religious revolution. Um, these are, I only have 10. I don't even know if we'll get through all 10 of them. Um, and I certainly don't offer them dogmatically. They're, they are a way to tie some things together and to give us great <laughs> So what I'm going to do is um, I'll sort of go through these one at a time. And after each one, we'll stop and have some conversation. And we can just talk about it. Um, and if we get through all of them, great. And if we don't, um, I will share them. Either way, I'm going to share them with you on the website for this course. So uh, along with all the other um, PowerPoints, I'll make those available to you as well. Um, but this is hopefully a good way of helping us wrap up and reflect together. Okay, uh, thesis number one. So uh, we do have to deal with biblical passages about divine wrath, about hell and about eternal punishment. We do have to deal with them. That's not the same as liking these passages. <laughs> I don't know if you know this, you're allowed to dislike passages in the Bible. It does not make you a bad or unfaithful Christian if, you know, when you study a passage in the Bible, you kind of grit your teeth or think, I really don't like that one. I have parts of the Bible I feel that way about. Um, you're, you're allowed to do that. Um, when I say we have to deal with them, I mean we have to come to terms with them in some way. We have to make our peace with them. We have to find a way of, of getting along with them because divine anger in scripture is, is most of the time divine anger against sin. Divine punishment in scripture is quite often divine punishment of sin. <laughs> um, and it's a very important theme of the Bible you see this throughout the scriptures, right? So I have examples here from the New Testament, from the book of Revelation, of course it's there, from Paul. Um, also, and perhaps especially in the four gospels and on the lips of Jesus. There's a wonderful passage, uh, almost an aside in Lewis, when he's talking about his own view on hell and the problem of pain, where he says, this is the, the one point of Christian doctrine I would just as soon jettison. I wish I could just completely ignore it and pass over it. The reason I don't want to is, is I'm compelled by the many references Jesus made to the subject to deal with it in some way. It, so we're part of the PCUSA, which is considered part of the, the mainline church. Mainline churches, of course, it comes from us here in Philadelphia. If you were a Protestant denomination that had a congregation on the affluent, in the affluent suburbs headed out on the R5 from the city center, you were on the main line. And so you were a mainline uh, Protestant congregation. So um, our congregations tend to be a bit more theologically progressive and a bit more affluent and suburban. So in many mainline churches, the practice concerning biblical passages about divine wrath, about hell and eternal punishment is simply to pass them over in awkward silence. <laughs> and I've done that a time or two in my own preaching. Um, I've been present when it's happened many, many times. I wanna suggest that, that we miss something. 
that we lose something when we pass these passages over in awkward silence. Um, what, what do we miss? So one way of putting it is that the God of the Bible should not be reduced to the genial optimism of much American culture. The idea of I'm okay, you're okay. The, the God of the Bible is different than that. The God of the Bible is, is more challenging than that, but also more substantive than that. And I think our culture in America generally, I would venture to say, we are capable of a kind of facile optimism. And if you operate from the point of view of a facile optimism, right? Oh, it's easy to leave out all that stuff about divine wrath and judgment and all that stuff, right? I referenced Joel Osteen, right? Who's the most popular preacher in America, largely because he preaches a gospel of prosperity, of positive thinking, of upward mobility. If we cannot engage with passages like this from scripture, I think we will ultimately disconnect ourselves from the biblical witness about justice and oppression. So, you know, consider how much of, um, consider the prophets in the Old Testament. So Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, minor prophets, lesser prophets like Hosea and Amos. Um, those books have a lot to say about social justice, and they also have a lot to say about sin and denouncing sin. Um, and we can't get rid of the second part without getting rid of the first part. So my hope is that um, in the church, we can find some way of dealing with these biblical passages, um, acknowledging them, discussing them, teaching from them in a way that's appropriate um, without falling into hellfire and brimstone preaching, to be sure. Um, I wanted to close this point with these cutting words from H. Richard Niebuhr. H. Richard Niebuhr was a famous um, preacher and theologian in the 20th century. His brother, Reinhold, is also very famous. He described a certain kind of popular theology in his day this way. He said, oh, a God without wrath brought men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. <laughs> that was his sort of cutting verdict on a lot of more progressive theology in his day. And so the first marker I wanted to put down was simply to say, you know, it would be a shame if we wound up in this space. It would be a shame if we wound up following this way. All right, I'm gonna keep going. If you've got thoughts, feel free to raise your hand or, or just unmute yourself and jump in. Okay, second, on the other hand, <laughs> on the other hand, we won't come up with an adequate understanding of salvation, heaven and hell, simply by citing biblical passages. So this gets into the conversation we were having a few minutes ago um, about how the Bible works and the, the nature of biblical authority. Wow. <laughs> so the, the biblical witness is diverse. Um, some passages seem to speak clearly of hell and eternal punishment. So Matthew 25 is one example of this. There are numerous others. We talked about them in the previous point, right? Revelation, Paul, 
many in, in the Gospels. Others, however, seem to speak clearly of God's desire to save all and the universal scope of Christ's atoning work. So 1 Timothy 2, 1 Corinthians 15, Romans 5, there are, there are numerous passages as well. Even Augustine, who's a very thorough and careful biblical exegete, has to put a gloss on some parts of scripture in order to be able to explain how God can desire all to be saved and then have some people go to hell. So the scriptural witness is diverse. It's complicated. Then, of course, there's the ministry of Jesus with its characteristic emphasis on Jesus Christ pursuing and seeking out the lost. So some of the most beloved parts of Holy Scripture are all about this. All of Luke 15, the parable of the prodigal son, the parable of the good shepherd, the parable of the widow and the lost coin, these are worth going back and reading in the context of this discussion where the, you know, the good shepherd actively leaves the 99 and goes and looks for the lost one. It's no accident that four chapters later in Luke 19, Jesus says the son of man came to seek and save the lost. So if we're going to take seriously the character of Christ's ministry as portrayed in the Bible, that's going to weigh in on this, on this as well. So there's this saying called Bible bullets. Have you ever heard that before? Bible bullets. Bible bullets is when you're discussing a topic in the church and someone says, well, I don't believe in that because the Bible says blah, blah, blah. And they'll quote it usually from memory. Bam, Bible bullets, right? And Bible bullets are a great way to start a fight, right? Because then the other person will say, well, what about blah, 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 this verse? Bam, right? And they shoot a Bible bullet back. It's good to know the, the Bible. It's good to be able to quote the Bible from memory. That's a wonderful thing. But simply quoting scripture does not um, advance the conversation when it comes to a complicated issue like this one. This is one area where things are not as simple as the Bible says it, I believe it, and that settles it. There may well be many areas where it is that simple, but certainly on this issue, I don't think it's that simple. You can see, I say here, what individual passages say and what the Bible teaches as a whole may differ. So what individual passages say and what the Bible teaches as a whole may differ. So the analogy I, I sometimes use, you know, imagine you're reading a novel and it's a novel about a married couple that have a rocky marriage and they struggle to stay together. And there's a part in the middle of the story where the husband and wife have a big fight and one of them says to the other, I wish I'd never met you. And then a hundred pages later, they have this beautiful reconciliation and they decide they're going to stay together. They're going to work it out. They fall back in love with each other and the novel ends happily. Both those passages of the novel are 
true to what the novel is about. And they are relevant to the overall meaning of the story. But if you, if you were to say, okay, this is a novel about how these two people wish they had never met each other, and you would be misinterpreting in a fundamental way what the story is about, because that passage of the novel is part of this larger story that ends with reconciliation. So I think there's a similar thing going on when we read the Bible, where we need to think carefully about how each individual passage fits into the larger story of scripture and what's going on in it and weigh it against the most important parts of the story. So there are abundant examples we could talk about from the Bible, right? There's an, how many of you, do any of you know what's in Psalm 137? We know Psalm 137. So Psalm 137 starts out and by saying, by the rivers of Babylon, that's, the, that's what's in Psalm 137. It's a beautiful psalm about um, God's Jewish people being in exile and wishing they were back in um, the land of Israel. It, <laughs> it ends on this very shocking note because at the end of Psalm 137, um, it shifts from sadness to, to rage. So at the end of Psalm 137, it says, boy, oh boy, oh boy, someday we're going to get back at these Babylonians who have dragged us away from our promised land. And blessed is the one who takes their little babies and dashes them against a rock. It's really quite horrifying, right? Um, and... <laughs> that passage is part of Holy Scripture. It's there, right? Now, in Matthew 5, what do we get? Of course, we get Jesus' command to love our neighbors and to forgive our enemies. And if someone slaps us on our cheek, we turn the, even the other cheek. So I want to suggest that those two passages of Scripture stand in a similar sort of relationship to the two passages from the novel that we talked about, right? Where they're both important parts of the story. They both have their own validity. We cannot dismiss either one of them out of hand, but to simply act as though they were on the same level would be a misunderstanding. So how does this relate to hell? <laughs> In scripture, we find some passages that seem to support the idea of hell and other, passage, other passages that might push back against it have to do with the character of God and the nature of Jesus' ministry. And I think in some ways, I want to suggest those are just as important, if not more important than the other ones. Are you with me? Can I, can I make that? clearer dave as you were saying that i i was thinking between your bible bullets and some of that other stuff and it, it made my mind start thinking about how careful we need to be to not pretend like we really know everything about god yeah um 
it's like that scene and uh, everybody's probably seen this movie my big fat greek wedding where the father keeps saying give me any word and i'll tell you how it started in greek and he knows everything <laughs> and then the daughter sassily says kimono <laughs> you know and it's that moment where he's just like kind of like he comes up with an answer but it's <laughs> he can tell he's grasping right? sure sure and the other side of that is like when C.S. Lewis then at the end of a line, which in wardrobe kind of as Aslan takes off, who's representing the God figure in that, in that. And I think we have to be careful again, not to equate God to fictitious characters because, you know, yes, there's a hero's journey and all that stuff, but where do we think that began? Right. right. It began with God. It is God's story. So when we start creating these other figures, we as people start to grab onto these ideas and think that, Oh, he's human. But at the yeah. end, uh, they say, after all, he's not a tame lion. Right. You know, and, and it's this, this real recognition of, yes, he's loving and yes, he's tender. But there's another side of him. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. And I think that's, that's very much what I'm getting at in point number one, right? That as Aslan is not a tame lion, he is a good lion. And part of what we see in scripture is that God is infinitely kind and forgiving and loving, but God is not weak or spineless or wimpy. Um, and in just the same, in just the same way, this is how we as Christians are called to be. And I think this is part of the reason for holding on to um, some understanding of God's anger towards sin and, and the understanding of God's judgment, right? Is that um, you know, God, God does not wink at human wrongdoing. Um, God does not, you know, simply pat people on the head and say, oh, you were misguided. Come on into heaven, right? There's something much more serious going on. Um, so a lot of, so a lot of point number two is about how scripture functions in the life of the church and how we interpret a complicated document like the Bible. So we're sort of continuing to work with this theme. Um, other questions or comments about point one or point two? I just wanna say one thing. You just said that God was not wimpy, which I agree. And I have to, but I keep seeing people separate Jesus and God so much. And the God, you know, Jesus is the loving one, but I don't think of Jesus as wimpy either. Yes, I 100% agree with you, right? And, um, you know, gentle Jesus, meek and mild, only tells half the story. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, part of what we see in scripture is this Jesus who was bold enough and committed enough to his divine calling to stick with it until they killed him. And it takes a lot of courage and toughness to do that. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that's worth that's worth remembering. Um, thank you. Okay. Yeah. Could you go back one page on your PowerPoint? Yeah. Just looking at how it says um, passages speak clearly of, of hell and eternal punishment, and then um, it talks about Christ pursuing the lost, yeah. the lost, which um, to me just uh, proves that there's hell because Jesus is working so hard to uh, prevent people from going there. Sure. 
Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting question, right? So can we, what does it mean that, that Jesus' ministry assumes that there is such a thing as alienation from God, right? Being estranged from God or not right with God. I mean, this, this is a, a fundamental part of Jesus' ministry, right? He's the great physician. I, I, I came, you know, it's not the, the healthy that need a doctor, it's the sick. Um, you're, you're totally right, Deb, um, that that's an important, indispensable part of Jesus', Jesus ministry. I think the question is not, not whether, whether or not people are really alienated from God, separated from God by sin. The question is whether whether and how that separation is um, permanent or not. So part of what Augustine says is that, you know, you, you got this life and that's it. You know, and if you don't make up your minds to follow Jesus in this life, you're out of luck. Um, and the other figures we looked at um, you know, Lewis or Bard or Origen had a more, had a different point of view that said, um, you know, ultimately what Jesus wants is to bring those people out of the spiritual darkness and into the light, but it doesn't always have to happen in this life, in this moral life. I, I, so I think that, I think that speaks to that, that question a little bit, but you're, you're right on target with something important there. Okay. I'm going to keep going. So we'll move on to number three. So the first three points are kind of about biblical interpretation. And then we get into talking about the figures that we studied. So this is the last point about biblical interpretation. So there's this quotation, read the whole Bible in light of individual passages and read individual passages in light of the whole Bible. So you'll notice that sentence in quotation makes a circle, right? You read the whole Bible in light of individual parts and you read individual parts in light of the whole Bible and, and you, you go around and around and around and you never stop reading the Bible. That's the point. Um, the circularity there, as the kids say, is a feature and not a bug. So the, the goal then is not that we you, you don't read the Bible the way you read like the user's manual for your computer, right? Where you read it from beginning to end and you think, aha, I know how to do this now. I'm going to put it down and be done. You, you read it through from beginning to end and then you pick it back up at the beginning and you start reading it again. Um, because to be a Christian is to be involved in a never-ending practice of studying particular passages of the Bible and using those passages to construct an interpretation of the whole scriptural message. Another name for this practice is theology. So what we've been doing the last five weeks is theology. You may not have been aware of it, but it's, it's what you've been doing um, by studying and reflecting on these figures and by thinking about this particular issue in Christian thought, you've been doing theology. So congratulations, you're all novice theologians now. Um, theology starts at the point where we move from, from understanding and applying individual passages of the Bible to interpreting scripture as a whole. So if what I said in point number two is correct, 
that we can't come up with a proper understanding of heaven and hell simply by citing individual passages of scripture, then something like theology is going to be necessary for us because what we'll have to do is interpret the whole Bible. Um, and the figures we looked at do a good job of doing just this. Um, they are theologians, right? They're interpreting the scriptural witness about salvation in various and diverse ways, but they're all able to appeal to the Bible to support their point of view. Here's a fourth point, and then, then we'll stop again. We touched on this before. So this issue is important not only because of the Bible, which is, it's, that's a good enough reason for it to be important on its own. It's also incredibly important because of its relationship to personal experience. So every understanding of heaven, hell, and salvation implies not only an interpretation of scripture, but a set of personal commitments, a set of spiritual commitments, a set of emotional so, you know, our Christian faith isn't just something that we believe that's out there, right? It's in here and it's in here. You're walking around with it all the time. Um, and so underneath all the complexity and theological language, there's this urgent existential question. What is God really like? What picture do we have of God? Is God dependable and consistent, erratic and unreliable? Is God strict and legalistic, waiting for me to screw up? Is God loving and kind, or is God furiously angry? These are real live questions for real live human beings. And so theory and practice, um, theology and personal experience are unavoidably related. The thing I like to say is that all this deep theology stuff is like musical notes on a page, right? It's waiting to be played in someone's life. People's lives are like the actual performance. So from time to time, I'll talk to a person about their spiritual life and about their walk with Jesus. And they'll go da 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 da. And I'll think, oh, that's interesting. That's the you know, that's this set of notes on the page that I've studied. Um, so as I said, um, we, this issue is complicated. No one has to be, you don't have to, um, thankfully study is, not, <laughs> none of us are gonna know it all. You don't have to get a PhD to go to heaven, but um, there's no such thing as, an understanding of heaven, hell, salvation, that's, that's totally irrelevant because we're all walking around with a picture in our head of who God is. Um, the strongest evidence for this, I, I think, is um, the potential for spiritual abuse around heaven and hell. This is something that we talked about in week one, where you know a lot of people are un unfortunately really get the daylights scared out of them. Um, by Christian teaching around heaven and hell, some people are permanently alienated from Christianity because of the misuse of this doctrine. And so I think it's something worth taking trouble over, worth um, struggling with to, um, because it's very important for real life human beings. Okay, 
So let me take a look at my watch and make sure it's not eight o'clock. So when you're a student, time crawls in classes like this, but when you're a teacher, it, it's a form of time travel. You blink and an hour and a half has gone by like that. So I always have to keep one eye on the clock because when you're talking, time goes very quickly. Okay, so now I'm going to very, very briefly recap the figures we looked at, some of the figures we looked at. Augustine, um, I dismiss one of the most important Christian thinkers of all time with three glib words, influential but wrong. <laughs> influential but wrong. Um, Augustine is incredibly influential. It forms the bedrock of our Christian tradition, at least in the Catholic West. So all of us Protestants are descended distantly from our Catholic forefathers and foremothers. Augustine of Hippo sets the tone for the Catholic tradition in the West. As reformed Christians, um, figures like John Calvin and John Knox, they um, toe this Augustinian line in very important ways. So it's worth getting to know. Um, you know, one of the Ten Commandments is honor your father and mother. If you're a Presbyterian, it's worth honoring your forefathers and foremothers in faith, but to get to know their point of view, even if you disagree with them. That's how I think about this. From my point of view, Augustine's perspective has serious problems. The strengths of the Augustinian point of view are the emphasis on grace and the mystery of divine grace and divine sovereignty. So for Augustine, the saved have absolutely no right to look down on the damned <laughs> because the only thing that separates the two is God's mercy. Um, and there's this, there's this deep humility that I think can be created by the Augustinian point of view, right? Where if you're saved, you know, there is nothing that you offer that makes you better than other people. I think that's good. There's also a real logical consistency to the Augustinian program. We talked about this last week, where if you can stomach <laughs> Augustine's conclusions, if you can take where he lands, it is a very satisfying, not satisfying, a very complete picture of the Christian life. Nevertheless, these strengths come at a cost. It's a cost that's too high for me, and I suspect for most of you. The, the cost is God withholds salvation from some people for reasons we cannot know. So when Hunsinger goes through his seven points in our article, and he, he talks about how hell is inscrutable for Augustine, that's what he means. He means that in, in Augustine's point of view, it's, it's hard to know whether or not you are saved and you do not know why you are saved rather than another person. So this is like the flip side of what I was just talking about. The good thing about the Augustinian theology of grace is that it promotes humility. I'm not any better than anyone else. The bad thing about it is that Ultimately, Augustine cannot give any reason why God should decide to save me rather than Lou or Tony. 
and it creates the the um, cr creates the possibility that God could be re regarded as arbitrary. Um, you know, simply you know going over here, just you know deciding to save this person, deciding to save that person for no particular reason. This point of view the Augustinian point of view has created tons of pastoral and spiritual problems over the years. In particular, that question, how can I know I'm saved? If you have a broadly Augustinian framework where you cannot save yourself and the only thing that is going to send you to heaven is God's grace, the question of how can I, how do I know I'm saved becomes a big deal. So you see this all throughout the, especially the reformed tradition in um, the last couple centuries. So if you read the Puritans, for instance, the Puritans were reformed Christians from England. They settled in America. Uh, they wanted to build a city on a hill. The Puritans spent a lot of time worrying about whether or not God had really chosen to save them. Um, there's a famous article um, by a German guy named Max Weber called The Protestant Work Ethic and the Spirit of Capitalism. And in short, that article basically says um, Protestant Christians had this Augustinian ethic rattling around in their heads. And that's where the wealth of modern capitalist societies came from. Because since reformed Christians couldn't know for sure that they were saved, they decided that the next best thing would be getting themselves rich um, in order to show that God's hand of blessing was on their life. So, you know, it, it's as though if you could say, okay, well, I don't know if I'm saved, but I have 120 cows and 60 employees, so I'm doing okay. People might say, oh, well, I, I think Jim is saved, right? That sort of anxiety is going on. So there's a big problem with anxiety in this tradition. Okay, so that's Augustine. Let me continue to Lewis. Lewis, influential, but also wrong, or, or so I contend. Lewis is probably the most popular defense of hell in the 20th century, um, at least that I can think of. Um, from my point of view, I think Lewis also has serious problems. So, and, and, and this gets into my particular commitments in Christian theology. So on this point, I, many of you will disagree with me and that's fine. So <clears throat> I think Lewis offers an, an account of hell that is able to um, affirm divine goodness at the cost of qualifying divine sovereignty. So he affirms divine goodness. He has a strong account of how God is still good despite the existence of hell, but he gets there by weakening his account of God's sovereign um, rulership of the world. What I mean by that is, so for Augustine, unlike Augustine, unlike Augustine, Lewis's God doesn't send anyone to hell. 
So one of the tough bullets to bite for the Augustinian point of view, right, is not only the hell is eternal, but that it's ordained by God. God just decides to send people to hell. And when they are eternally damned, that is an expression of his will. Yoinks, right? Um, Lewis's God is easier to love because this God doesn't send anyone to hell. People send themselves to hell by virtue of their own choices, by virtue of their own free will. Sadly, if you continually exercise your free will, not to humble yourself and accept God's love, but to resist God's love proudly and spitefully, finally God says, okay, fine, have it your way, and, and there you are. This God, Lewis's God, is constrained or limited by the free choices of individuals. This God is constrained or limited by the free choices of individuals to accept or reject Christ's work on the cross. Their free choice competes with God's choices. Their free choice trumps God's own choices. So remember when Lewis says, some will object to my theory that the presence of a single soul in hell means the defeat of omnipotence. And what does Lewis do? He says, yes, you're exactly right. <laughs> if a single soul is in hell, it means omnipotence has been defeated. God's will to redeem and save everyone has been blocked by the proud unrepentant will of a sinner. Oh, well, right? That's, that's the way the cookie crumbles. That's the, the cost of Lewis's account of hell, right? Um, now, this is, this is where, this is a point in which I am more reformed. So um, Hunsinger doesn't even deign to consider Lewis in his article probably because he considers him insufficiently reformed. But Hunsinger critiques a man named John Robinson in the Hellfire article. And in a slightly different key, I think this is an appropriate presentation of, of my problems with Lewis. Hunsinger says this. So the first part of this block quote is in quotation marks. So this is Robinson talking, and the rest of it is by Hunsinger. He says, God has as much interest in the preservation of our freedom as ever we have ourselves. Any solution to the problem of eternal destiny, destiny which in any way compromises the fact of freedom stands self-condemned. God is so solicitous of our freedom that he will always work through a gentle leading. This policy statement might have surprised any number of biblical figures, <laughs> like Jacob at Peniel, where he wrestles with the angel, like Joseph at the hands of his brothers, thrown into a pit and then sold into slavery, like the money changers driven from the temple by Jesus, like Paul blinded on the road to Damascus to say nothing of whole armies like the Egyptians drowned at the Red Sea, or indeed of Jesus himself hanging on the cross. So this is Hunsinger kind of ringing the bell for his reformed point of view. T 
to say, um, we can't wriggle off the hook quite as easily as Lewis does by appealing to free will. Because the biblical picture we see in scripture is in fact that <laughs> divine grace does not always stand back and wait for a person to make a choice. Divine grace gets off the bench and gets in there and, and makes people's decision for them much of the time. Um, tell me if you agree with me in my criticism of Lewis or if you disagree. Um, let's talk about, and talk about Augustine as well. Do you, have you begun to understand some of the attractiveness of his point of view? Do you still regard it as completely unpalatable and ugly? Where are you at on these points? Um, the question I have about Lewis is this thinking that God doesn't send anybody to hell. God must have created hell. So therefore, people going to hell is of God's design. Yeah. I mean, he explains it in the problem of pain as saying um, God creates I, I think he, he would say it's only an indirect desire of God to create a place like hell that follows on God creating creatures that are capable of resisting and even rejecting him. So he says, once you create human beings with real free will, able to say yes to God or no to God, something like hell has to be a possibility. Yeah. I mean, I, I suppose in a sense, you could say that God desires it in that way. But I think Lewis would say, well, yeah, but only insofar as he really desires to create free creatures and not puppets. Mm -hmm. Right. And did God actually create hell? Is hell just every, anything that is outside of heaven it's like god created heaven god's realm and anything outside that oh, realm that's, that's can be considered hell yeah i mean, so, I mean he didn't go and say there's hell you know going to the black hole and be destroyed right. so one of, the, one of the things that's very interesting about lewis lewis especially is very imaginative at taking us away from sort of the hackneyed portrait of hell as flames yeah. and pitchforks and, and mm -hmm. right, physical right. torture and showing us instead of a very different and frankly far more persuasive picture of what hell might actually be like. Mm -hmm. And in, in The Great Divorce, you, we should all read The Great Divorce. I mean, this can, this can be the sequel to this class if you want. Um, like heaven is like, he, he describes hell as the gray town where it's just like a very drab, very isolated, very lonely, boring place. And it is, it has much less reality than heaven. So like when they go to heaven, they, um, the sunlight is so bright, it hurts them and walking on the grass feels like needles stabbing into their feet because the grass is so much more solid and substantial than what they're used to in hell. So there is this idea that heaven is the real thing and hell is not a place, it's 
the mm -hmm. the sort of leftovers, right? It's everything that's not heaven. Right. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, there's a whole interesting conversation to be had about like what is the <laughs> what sort of place might hell actually be. Dave, can you expand a little bit more about God is in Lewis's view limited or constrained? Yeah. Um, I'm wrestling with that over here because I'm thinking through things like when Abraham prays or like when the devil tempts Jesus to do, use his power and he chooses not to. Yes. And then that kind of led me to start thinking through, is he really constrained or weakened? Or is that, is constrained another way of saying like he's magnifying his patience, he's magnifying his power not to use his power? Or is constraints mean that he literally can't do it? Uh, because he's given up his power. Because um, even like, I'm thinking through like, uh, um, when Jesus is crucified, he doesn't pull him off yeah. the cross. Good. Or he waits for like David to, to rise instead of just destroying the Philistine army, right? He, he allows yeah. for the leaders to rise um, that'll lead his people to him. Or he allows the king to be chosen over him in the israelite kingdom so i'm trying to think through like what does that mean to constrain god yeah sure that that's a great question nate um and i wish that lewis had made more of that in the little article that we read um because i think it would have nudged him in a direction that was more um attract more with the biblical witness so yeah. certainly what we see in scripture, right? So there are all those passages that Hunsinger talks about here on the, here on our screen where God just kind of like, <laughs> metaphorically speaking, gets in some people's faces, throws the furniture around, changes things, right? Yeah. So certainly part of what we also see in scripture is God's, um, first God's partnership with human being, right? That, that God entrusts his mission in the world to humans who do it mm -hmm. um right so the great commission right jesus doesn't say i'm gonna go out and make disciples for myself he passes the task off to us in the church second what we see is um god's willingness to take the path of patient humble love rather than the path of blowing people away with divine power. And I think that's probably where Lewis is at his strongest, right? Is, you know, is, is it really that God, you know, that, that all we're waiting for is God coming and absolutely knocking us over with the power of the Holy Spirit so we just don't have any choice about whether or not to believe? So what I would say is both, everybody thinks that God has, um, human partners who respond in faith and obedience to what God wants them to do. Yeah. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think that's just, you know, right, seemingly overwhelmingly attested in the Bible. Yeah. And I think what's challenging is, I think the reformed tradition has tended to say, okay, those people, those partners don't, um, have the freedom to choose God until God chooses them first. Yeah. 
right? God creates the real freedom to say, aha, now I understand and I will obey. Lewis, uh, yeah. Lewis seems to think you need to have the option to say no for it to be a real free choice. Mm-hmm. And so you get into, there's a whole very detailed conversation about like what real freedom is. There's, there's like, like a friend of mine at Princeton wrote his whole dissertation about this. So it can, it can get really technical, but like I tend to side with, with the reformed tradition and saying real freedom is what happens when the Holy spirit starts to work in our life. And it's, yeah. not, it's not something we just have by virtue of being human beings. Yeah. I think that's really cool. And even into the, going into this class, you know, I'm like thought through, predestination free will quite a bit i'm a big predestination guy but this side of it makes me think through a a very uh free will lens in a weird way that i'm like how am i arguing for the opposite (laughs) team right now you know and so that's a very interesting um kind of uh, thought process that that, you know this this kind of a alice's rabbit hole so to speak for me i'm like oh man (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I, I love it. That's good. There, there's such a thing as benevolent theological confusion. Yeah, <laughs> you know, I get, I get it all the time, and uh, mm-hmm. I mean, if, you know, it's me, so I'm constantly confused anyway. But um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that's been helpful for you and kind of rethinking some of those issues. Um, okay, so I'm trying to keep one eye on the clock. Oh my gosh, it's eight thirty. Um, so do we have five more minutes for me to keep going a little bit? Yep. Mm-hmm. Finally, we'll get around to Karl Barth, right? Um, Barth's account, to me, is the most adequate. So very much like my teacher, George Hunsinger, Karl Barth, for me, is the guy who rides over the hill on the white horse at the end of the story. Um, that doesn't mean you have to agree with me, but it's how I look at it. Um, one reason I think his account is the best of the four we look at is that his interpretation of scripture strikes me as the most Christocentric. Christocentric, that's a fancy theological word that means most focused on the work of Jesus. And we talked last week a little bit about this. Um, You can see, depending on your point of view, you can see Bart as either kind of a debased Augustinian, <laughs> right? He's, Bart might be someone who's trying to be an Augustinian Christian, but simply fails. Or you can see Augustine as like the first draft of the eventual genius of Karl Barth, where Augustine has some good ideas, he puts them down on paper, and then 2,000 years later, along comes Uncle Karl, and he gets it all right. For Augustine, God doles out wrath to some and mercy to others. We talked about how this is the decision to dole out wrath to some and mercy to others is based on a decision that's ultimately inscrutable, unknowable. This is one place where there's a big difference between Bart and Augustine. Bart's rejoinder is that this, that idea makes Jesus a mere means to an end. So in other words, Bart charges that in Augustine, Jesus in effect becomes the tool that God uses to save a few people from hell rather than a real revelation of who God really is. 
And so for Bart, two commitments are really basic. First, that Jesus truly reveals the character of God. That in Colossians 1, when it says Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the icon of the invisible God in Greek, that that is true in a strong sense. And that the kinds of reservations and qualifications an Augustinian Christian might, might make simply won't go. And second, that Jesus' atoning work on the cross is not offered on behalf of a few, but in fact, for all. So two commitments that are emblematic of Bart's Christocentric, Jesus-focused theology. That Jesus reveals the character of God truly and fully, and that Jesus' atoning work on the cross is not offered on behalf of a few, but for everyone. Nevertheless, in Bart's account, there is um, a very strong role for divine grace as well. Like Augustine, Bart offers a strong understanding of divine grace in which divine grace, the initiative of the Holy Spirit itself, creates the freedom to respond in love and faith to God's work. So for Bart, like Augustine, omnipotence is not defeated. So um, Bard and Augustine are just going to toe a different line than that you find in Lewis. Unlike Augustine, however, Bart decisively rejects his conclusion that not all will be saved. So, uh, you know, Augustine just looks at the Bible and says, okay, Matthew 25, the sheep and the goats, we see a parable here of the eternal destiny of two groups of people. Boy, we have to conclude that not all will be saved. Bart says no to that. Interestingly, as we've already seen, Bart also says no to Origen's conclusion. Origen was the one who said, look, all are going to be saved in the end. Bart says no to that. So Bart's the guy that says, if I have to choose between not everyone is going to be saved and everyone's going to be saved, I'm just going to say none of the above. At this precise point, I think Bart makes the right decision. I think playing the mystery card here is exactly the right choice to make. What he does is leave the door open for the mystery of divine grace a mystery that resists systematizing, that resists our efforts to pin it down and make clear, compelling, logical conclusions about what's going to happen. One of my favorite theologians <laughs> once said, he said, good theology may be in large part a function of wise vagueness. <laughs> wise vagueness. I, I'm not sure if that's true or not, but I think this is an example of what he meant. This is an example of wise vagueness. So both Bart and Augustine appeal to mystery. For Augustine, however, it's why God sends certain people to hell and not others. For Bart, the mystery is whether anyone will finally reject Christ or not. Right? What, whether God will in fact not break down the doors that people erect to block, to block him out 
and um, invite them into his kingdom as well. All right, that's my brief for Karl Barth. Have I persuaded you that he's good and worth listening to? Um, are you all still with Lewis? Where are you at on him? Or are you just stunned into silence? And, and, and <laughs> turn your brain off well, I'll, let, let me ask you about Bart. Okay, I, I, I love you know his ideas with Bart. To, like, what happens? So, so God, the, the the Christ event affects all humanity. How about the people, uh, say Aborigines in the, sure. you know. And down in in Chile, in Chile or, 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 or yeah, that truly have no experience of the word of God, truly yeah. do not get received the word. Yeah. How does he? So Bart essentially says, um, we don't, we do not know what will become of such people, um, but we can trust that the god's attitude toward them will be in keeping with what we see revealed in jesus christ yeah and mercy and justice both okay. so it's it is very possible that many people who have never heard the name of jesus and um, will will be saved by jesus um in the life to come yes he's he's okay. very um he is very conspicuously leaving the door open for that sort of idea. Okay. Yeah, I love that expression, <laughs> the, the mystery of divine right. grace. Right. I think of medication now, like, I, I don't know of anybody in particular, but medication that can cause young, you hear the advertising on television, oh, this medication, antidepressant, can cause suicidal thoughts. And let's say the poor teenager went ahead Sure. you know, and suicide. It, yeah, it, let's say, and it's the medication that made him do it. <laughs> so, you know, there's the mystery of divine grace, like God will take other things into account. Yeah, absolutely. So, and, and one of the, yeah, one, one of the things um, that's most powerful, I think, about, about the, the Bardian point of view is that you never have to give up hope for anyone. Yeah. Right. Even even if someone dies without having accepted Jesus or dies without knowing anything about Jesus at all, you can still pray and hope for their salvation. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I remember when I was a pastor in Illinois, there was a woman whose son had died by suicide. Mm -hmm. And she came in and she, what she wanted me to say was, I don't believe your son is in hell. And as soon as I said, yeah, of course, I, you know, I, I definitely believe that God will be merciful to your son. She busted out crying. And it was this very powerful experience, again, of, you know, all Christian doctrine eventually touches down in real people's lives. I think to be able to say to her, yes, you can have hope for your son. That, you know, this, this last effort to, this last gesture of self-hatred, of self-harm, did not, in fact, place him outside the grip of God's eternal love was a, a really healing thought for her. Um, and so that's one reason I find this point of view so compelling and powerful. I like the introduction to Bart. I don't 
I haven't read a lot of his um, stuff and it's kind of like peeking through and seeing Christmas morning, right? And you go, oh, this is really cool. And then they're like, oh, by the way, we're going to go to grandma's house next too, right? And have more Christmas. You know, so it's like you kind of you see through, see Bart and you go, you know, the danger is to believe that the world is just merely the saved and the damned, right? Uh, and with Bart, he's kind of saying, you know, it's also important to realize that we're not we're not just one of those like we've got a lot of light in us and darkness in us and while we are very logical beings it's a real comfort to know that ultimately god is logical and wise uh but may not rely on logic to make his choice yeah yeah may just rely you know you get what i'm saying like kind of kind of like in there where there's like this idea that you know he's god at the end Right. Yeah, there's a very, part of the reason Bart leaves the door open for universalism, but won't walk through it, so to speak, is this very chastened sense of, at the end of the day, God is God and I'm not. And, you know, it's, it's not, you know, it's not our job to figure out, okay, that guy's definitely going to hell. That guy is going to purgatory and this guy's going, you know, like, he doesn't, I think he resists quite rightly the impulse to sort people out in that way. Um, I wonder if his uh, persistence comes from knowing who he is and knowing what he believes in a much stronger um, way that he doesn't have to have the same kind of humility in, in a good way that other people will politically align themselves in such a way that like, I got to leave the door open so that I can't be proven wrong. Uh sure you know what i mean like he believes what he's saying yeah. with with a solid conviction maybe more so than his um his other uh he doesn't know he's competing against anyone by any stretch of the imagination but when he's saying that the conviction he has is there in a different way yeah i mean there's a i think there's a mixture of confidence but also saying okay this is this is what i know and this is what i don't know, I don't know. yeah <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. Um, and I, yeah, I certainly find being that. honest about that. Yeah. yeah. Cause you don't see a lot of theologians show their back and say, well, I don't know the answer to that one. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I think you're muted. My, my big takeaway really from all this, especially tonight, which I I'm, this is exciting for me is what that, that individual passages say and what the Bible as a whole says may differ. And I like that idea of looking at it as a whole, because you, I've met so many of these bullet Christians <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. very holier than thou because they have a good memory, which I don't. And then, um, you know, they have all the answers in that each scripture has the same amount of weight right. and that holy and it needs to be followed. And I, so I really do like that idea and that's a different idea for me. And it kind of puts an answer to some of the questions I've had. Yeah. Thank I'm, you. I'm so glad, Ro. Thank you very much. So, Dave, I thought you titled this your 10 theses. I've only had seven. Yes, um, as, as is tragically common for me in my life, we didn't get through all 10 of them. And since I don't want to keep all of you here until 930, um, I, I think we're going to have to conclude a little bit early. Um, I will um, ask Susan to post these PowerPoint slides. Um, on the on paleoprez.org slash adults so you can download and look at them at your leisure.
Oh, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Good, because they're so interesting. Yes. Will, so will I be on the final exam? <laughs> Uh-oh. Open book. Uh, there, is, there is no final exam other than God's final exam. Um, <laughs> oh, God. And that one's a pop quiz. So, you know. <laughs> well, um, so let me say a couple things. Thank you all so much for coming and participating. I, you know, as I said, when we started there's bound to be some loose ends. So if you have, um, thank you for indulging us in this very brief um, engagement with these wonderful questions. If you have more thoughts or you wanna rap about it, nothing would make me happier. Shoot me an email or um, send me a text and I'd love to talk to you about it more one-on-one. -on -one. Thank you, friends. God bless you. Thank you, thank you. Thank you, thank you so much. Thank, thank you, you. thank you. God. My pleasure. God bless. Talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.